New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. On the morning of September 8th, 1900, disaster struck the vibrant, prosperous island of Galveston, Texas, tearing out its heart. We'll travel back to meet the islanders who defied the full fury of Mother Nature in a great novel. Next. The year is 1900. Galveston flourishes in the Gilded Age. It hails as the pride of Texas exports. On the morning of September 8, 1900, the hopes and dreams of Galvestonians will come to a tragic halt. In a time before storms were named, the great storm of Galveston, Texas has all but become a legend. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. You know me, I am your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat to everybody watching today's time travel adventure via our YouTube channel. Please do follow me at historyauthor.com and across social media platforms. Plus, you can read my columns in the New York Sun to get my analysis of current events. Those are news, sports, politics, and yes, sometimes even the weather through the lens of what I've learned from all of these history books on the shelves behind me. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the turn of the last century. Once there, we'll meet the fictional 16-year-old Clara and the Gladys family. And I say they're fictional, but something great fiction does is bring those characters to life for us. And that's exactly what happens in this novel against the backdrop of this worst natural disaster that the United States has ever faced. This was the storm with no name, the hurricane of 1900, and it killed between 6,000 and 8,000 people. And yet this story has been forgotten. Our guide on this journey is international award-winning author, Anna J. Walner, and she brings us Saltwater and Driftwood, a historical novel. Anna is a native Texan, and she began her career as a fantasy novelist, delivering the Evonia series and the four-volume Ulura Legacy, a story of vampires and werewolves, which is the kind of Dark Shadows fiction I'm known to enjoy myself when I'm not digging into history. You can visit our guest at AnnaJWalner.com, where you can navigate through to her social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as her own YouTube chat. Okay, now that we've arrived back in Galveston, Texas, 122 summers ago, just as the rain begins to fall and the sky grows dark, let's join Anna Walner as the sands of the Gulf Coast fill with salt water and driftwood. And here we are with Anna J. Walner. She is safe and dry and joining us to chat about her novel, Salt Water and Driftwood. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on today. Well, a pleasure to get your book and to read it. When an author wants to be on, that's always a charge. And then you get the book and that's exciting. This one, Saltwater and Driftwood, right from the cover and opening it, one of my little tests is if my wife sees it or when I used to be in an office and somebody walks by my desk and they'll stop at my office door and see it there and say, whoa, what's that book about? And that's what Saltwater and Driftwood has. Let's 
judge your book by its cover. Let's let's just start there briefly and tell us what this cover represents, especially for people that are just listening on our heart radio and may not be watching on YouTube. What what does this cover say to you? How does it come about? Absolutely. So I wanted it to say historical fiction right off the bat and to evoke a feeling of being at Mother Nature's mercy. So inside the bottle, we have a boat that is being tossed about in a storm. And when I saw that, I just, I told my cover designer, that's it, that's perfect, that's exactly, I, I fell in love with it instantly. So it was a, uh, it was an automatic lock for me. You know when you get the right cover. And sometimes there'll be a great book and it doesn't have the right cover. You think it's a little off or doesn't doesn't capture it. This certainly does. And for you, I love that this book is not one that you just crank out, but it's one that seems to me at least to be a labor of love, something you've been interested in for just a really long time. You've been fascinated by the weather. You've been fascinated by this great Galveston storm of 1900 in particular. So how did that interest inspire you to write this novel? Because like the book itself, your story has a great plot to it. You have a great origin story about how this book comes about. So tell people that are listening and watching a little bit about how the book comes about. Thank you. So growing up as a kid, we were a beach going family. We visited every beach along the Gulf Coast, uh, mostly in Texas, Galveston, Port Aransas. Um, so I grew up around the ocean because that was our go-to destination. We didn't go skiing and we didn't go to the mountains. We went to the beach. And so growing up, my dad told me the story of the great storm of Galveston 1900. And for some reason, it just locked into it. I mean, I had just locked onto it. And it, it was such a fascinating subject that I devoured everything that I could on the topic. And there wasn't much to find because our Wikipedia at that time was a card catalog. And so mostly what I came up with were encyclopedia articles, some microfiche, uh, you know, uh, film of the, the actual, you know, uh, news clippings from that time, but not a lot else. So it was always kind of one of those things that was a big mystery to me. And I wanted to delve deeper and get more information. I am a curiosity seeker. I'm cursed with an insatiable curiosity. <laughs> and so uh, I became a lover of all things weather and the storm itself has just sat with me for decades. Um, begging to be told anything that I see that has anything to do with the great storm of 1900, I will pick up. It's an automatic buy for me. It's an automatic watch for me. So, and I couldn't find a historical fiction on the storm. And I thought how sad that is. And maybe one day I will get the courage to write that book. And I did. But now it's great. I went and people who are watching on YouTube will see some of these newspapers that I, from the comfort of my chair, I could just go and look at the newspaper archives, start searching about the storm and learn. And I think that's another real service that good historical fiction does and Saltwater and Driftwood does do that is it makes you want to learn more about the real events. You hear something like 5,000 to 6,000 or 8,000 people died and you say, what well, was that real? And then you go and you look and there's the, you inspired me to do this. And even though I'd heard of the storm and there's one 
page of the newspaper that just had more names added to the dead. And it's really poignant. You see those names, you picture those people. And so here in your novel, you're able to bring us one family, which is just the way we're wired, of course. We, we One name, one family, one story we can relate to. Whereas when we start hearing thousands of deaths, it's, it's a lot harder. So you bring that to life right here. Thank you so much. That's a great compliment. You know, uh, I've always been, I, I, I think that I always wanted to tell it from the point of view of a single family, but I wanted to incorporate multiple point of views to kind of give people the, the entire story because it deserves to be told. But when you have characters that are relatable, then it really draws the reader in and it makes an impact. And as you say, it makes you want to go and do the research and Google it and say, how can this be based on actual events? Did something like this really happen? And why have I never heard about this? <laughs> yeah, it's so true. You wonder, you tell people something like this and they just are blown away. Yes, there was a story, there were these real people and then you distill it down here into a novel and to me, it was also interesting that your previous fiction, the Enrovia series and the Uluru legacy, these were in the fantasy genre. So pretty far away, you can you can make up things. In fact, that's the job. Of course, you're, you're supposed to make things up in fantasy. You could design your whole new worlds for your readers to enjoy. And then you pick up Saltwater and Driftwood and you state on that first page that this novel is as accurate as possible. And when I read that statement, I, I could sense you as an author, I could sense all your work, all the effort that went into that, how much it meant to you to be able to say to yourself, I'm being honest when I write this, because if I'm going to write this as accurate as possible, I have to really be willing to do that work for my readers. It's such a sign of respect for people who have read your previous work and it brings them along where maybe they just read fantasy. It brought all of those readers along here for you to take them on another journey here in more history-based, more factual-based people. How do you make that transition? Well, to be honest, I've always been a lover of history. I have a sugarcane press in my backyard from 1889. <laughs> nice. So, um, I, <laughs> uh, the, the, you know, each of the books that you mentioned are fantasy based. There is history in some parts of those books. So whether it be the Lydia Ann Lighthouse in Aransas Bay in the Enrovia series, or the cultures and customs of the Aboriginal people of Australia in the Allure Legacy series, uh, it also ties back to the founding of New Holland and why the vampires and lycanthropes migrated to the colony of New Holland in 1788. So there is, and then it also deals with science and genetic mutation. So I put a lot of facts and a lot of history into even those books as well. Well, good to know, because I think once people finish Saltwater and Driftwood, they're going to say, what else does this author have? What else could I get? So if people don't people don't think that they want to read fantasy maybe they've never read it before it's it's a good it's a good gateway drug let's say only uh mill i guess it is a little addictive i it's not a great metaphor for you but it's pretty good because uh, it's true people want to go and read other work by an author that they like and that's something that definitely is the case here about saltwater and driftwood 
I want to now dig, dig into the novel because we've, I think we've set the table really nicely. Saltwater and Driftwood, it was inspired in part by a comment from your grandmother. And this is one reason it's important when we're, whatever age we are, if you have older people, older relatives, or even older neighbors that you could speak to, sit and listen. And by all means, now we all have cell phones, right? So pick it up and just ask if you could start recording because once they're gone, the, the stories and the first person accounts are gone. But your grandmother says something to you at 95 that she wished she kept a journal uh, of all of her experiences across her long life. So how does that regret of hers help inspire your fictional heroines? And do you keep a journey, a journal of your own? I'm, I'm betting that there was one at some point. Oh, I write in it every night. I actually have two journals. I have a personal journal that I write in every night. And then I keep another journal for my daughter of things that I've experienced and current national events that have occurred that she might want to see my thoughts on um, later in life if she is too cursed with that insatiable curiosity that I had <laughs> as a child. Um, but she did. She, my, my, you know, my grandmother was tough. She was really tough. Uh, she, she, we grew up, she grew up in a small town in East Texas and she would walk to school. I know the old, I walked 40 miles in the snow. No, she was, she was very realistic about it. She said, you know, the school was about an hour and a half away. It took me, you know, this long to walk. We would go to town in horse and buggy. Um, She's been, she's lived through the, she had lived through the Great Depression and the World Wars, the Cold War, so many things that she had seen and the way that, you know, everything had, had come along in her long life. She said, I just, I, I wish I could do what you do and, and would have written it all down. And, uh, you know, I was so fascinated. I would ask her questions. My my grandfather was Native American, uh, half Native American. So his mother was full-blooded Native American. And I was so fascinated with that. And I would ask her endless questions about culture and about, and he served in the uh, Second World War. And so I was you know, always asking questions. I was, I was the annoying granddaughter that was constantly asking her questions, but, um, but yes, that's where I got the inspiration to start saltwater and driftwood. So I always say that my writing begins with a simple sentence or thought or paragraph that really just kicks the book into motion. And it was then five years ago, this was five years ago that she passed, that, um, that I started thinking from that point of view, what if there were a journal that was found by a great granddaughter or a granddaughter that was written a long time ago about her experience during the great storm or reflecting back on that time in her life. And so the book begins with the discovery of this journal. I got a perfect segue from you there because I like to ask novelists to read a brief passage, gives readers a taste of your writing, but also gives them a hint at what you find exciting and interesting. So set up this snippet for us and you can have at it and we'll, we'll get a little taste here of saltwater and driftwood. I already have one passage. Uh, bookmarked. 
In the blackness of the living room, the men debate on staying inside or venturing out into the storm. The theory of one side being that staying inside once the structure succumbs would prove more dangerous. The opposite argument is made that without the remaining protection of the weakened walls around us, we would be exposed to the elements and unknown dangers that if not breached would have still left standing. It is no doubt now, as the house dances with each swell of the waves, then settling once more, only to swell again, that we are well and truly at the mercy of the sea now. We have no control over anything but our own wills to survive. Shrieks and screams overtake the sound of waves as the second floor gives way. The crashing and ripping apart of boards are followed quickly by the sounds of water being hit with force. The swells flow in from each lump of chimney or terrace, each bed and each decorative steeple that once graced the tops of the house. Go through so much of the imagery there in such a tightly written paragraph or a couple of paragraphs and you feel like you're in the storm and that's something i definitely wanted to ask you about because you have your characters how do you put yourself in their shoes have you been through these storms i know there's katrina andrews sandy they have passed through there on the gulf coast in galveston and we only start naming these storms even in 1950 so makes it easier to keep track of them in your mind but I was going to say nobody is going to ever forget the 1900 storm and yet people have so that's that's wrong and maybe that's part of the reason why it didn't live in infamy as it certainly deserved to how did you get all those smells the sounds the taste the five senses that we tell novelists that they should always touch upon when they're writing something how do you catch them how do you catch those details remember them because uh, i'm picturing you maybe you're there in the middle of a storm and you've got the notepad out and the wind is whipping the pages on you so how do you bring that to life for saltwater and driftwood you know uh i think you you've, you've really hit on something once you ascribe a name to something then it becomes more real to people so the great storm of galveston is what it's now been termed as because, as you say, it was not named. And um, people have somewhat forgotten about it. And they will say to me, no, Katrina was worse. And arguably, it was more well known and certainly covered by national media and the Weather Channel and all of the and social media. So it sticks in people's minds as one of the greatest catastrophes to hit US soil. But in reality, the great storm of 1900 was in fact the worst natural disaster to ever affect the United States. And so um, I have never, I've not taken notes because having gone through Hurricane Ike, Hurricane Rita, Harvey, Allison, all of these storms leave an indelible mark on me and my memory. So I can remember where I was and what I was doing. I remember that when people were running out of gas on the freeway, my mother, who was a home builder at the time, invited people to come stay in empty homes she had. Now, they may not have had beds, but they had a place to stay. During Ike, I remember they had introduced contraflow lanes, which was an amazing thing to see. We have both northbound and southbound lanes of Interstate 45 and Interstate 59 that run through Houston. There was no traffic allowed 
to go south, both sides of the freeway, cars were heading north to prevent something like that from happening again. And going through the storm is just something that you never forget. The way that the wind sounds, the way that you're constantly watching uh, the, the forecast, if you have power, and uh, your phone to see the radar. And then helping in times of need, I've also gone through an EF zero tornado and coming into the neighborhood to help my dad and other neighbors clear trees with chainsaws, pulling the debris out of the way. So I have uh, had quite a few brushes with mother nature uh, from which to draw inspiration from. And it's not something that you take notes on. As I said, it's just something that you never forget. And by the way, I want everybody to know, you mentioned the Weather Channel in there. And I remember when the Weather Channel first came out and people said, oh, come on, how can you possibly make a whole channel 24 hours a day of weather? And this is exactly how a book like Saltwater and Driftwood tells you how, because the weather in the, in the right hands, it is very exciting. It is life and death. We just cling here to this big blue marble and it's easy to forget that we are on a planet we're hurtling through space and we we're we're at the mercy of forces like a hurricane when it comes so that that's something that jumped out at me there because i know you you are a fangirl if i may say of the weather channel right you always watched it from the beginning <laughs> jim cantuary has salt water under <laughs> right now actually <laughs> <laughs> there you go this book is set on the gulf coast Texas Monthly declares it a must read for the summer, which is a great feather in your cap. You must have just been so proud. I'm sure your grandmother's smiling down at you on that one. What do you hope readers, though, throughout the world? Because as I said, you're a fantasy novelist. You published seven previous books. You're an international bestseller. So all of those books are out there. Those readers are out there. So tell people why this book is not just a Texas story. This storm without name, this incredibly forgotten storm that it's incredible that it's been forgotten that it appeals to people even though it has that great texas monthly recommendation it's for everybody it's for people that are far outside outside the lone star state that maybe only know texas from reruns of dallas what about them give us give us a moment maybe from your book what about it resonates with everybody that's a very human moment when say Clara is cowering there and that wind is whipping and it's this sound, she's so loud, it's like something she's never heard before. So make your pitch to those readers that are outside of our second largest state. Oh, everyone has been touched in some way, shape, form or fashion by weather. As you say, we are on this blue marble and we cannot escape the power of mother nature. So whether it is a flood or whether it is a tornado, a monsoon, a hurricane, uh, any sort of event that you go through, even a terrible thunderstorm that scares you as a child. It's something that I think we're all familiar with that sense of helplessness when it comes to mother nature herself. It's a unifying feeling to have no control over the weather. And I think that that will resonate with a lot of people, everyone really. I love the period of the Gilded Age as my regular listeners and viewers know. So I love that. And then I'm hearing and seeing pictures of all this destruction and 
So it made me wonder when you're writing the novel for one thing, but also because I, I don't want to talk so much about your craft, which I've been doing so far. It's always a challenge not to give the whole novel away. And that's one way I talk about it without giving the whole thing away is talk about your craft. So how much of it was still available? How much of it is still there for you to walk the streets, the seawall, for instance, the, the places that you could go? Because when you look at these pictures, you think nothing, not only did people not survive, but no building could possibly have survived this. So how much of that Galveston, of Clara, of the Gladys families, Galveston, was still there for you to go and walk as you were crafting saltwater and driftwood? So the seawall is one of the greatest engineering marvels in United States history. Not only that, but they raised the entire grade of the island after the storm by up to 17 feet in places. So uh, it was a great undertaking to rebuild the city. St. Mary's Orphanage is one very heartbreaking and tragic story that you will find in the book of a structure that did not survive. But there were lots of places that have, and they have a plaque that says Galveston 1900 hurricane if they were built pre-1900 and still stand today. Visitgalveston.com is a wonderful place if you want to get more information on the history of the island or even plan a visit to walk the same streets that Clara and the Gladys family did. So the Gilded Age was a time when Galveston was known as the New York City of the South or the Queen of the Gulf Coast. Presidents came to stay and it was the first to have gas lamps and electricity and horse-drawn um, trolleys. The trolleys, the trolley lines still run today, although they're electric, of course. And the Strand was a place of wonder where not only were they exporting cotton and sugarcane from the Morgan and Sealy lines and other exporters and shipping companies at the time, but also importing exotic items that you could only find on the Strand in shops, um, delectable goodies, ivory trinkets, and linens, things from far, far away. People would come from all over Texas to shop the Strand, which still remains. You can walk it today. It's, it's gorgeous. You're enjoying my conversation with Anna J. Walner. She's author of Saltwater and Driftwood. It is a wonderful historical novel, and as you can tell, I'm excited to talk about the real history behind it, but also has a wonderful plot. It does what a good novel is supposed to do, keeps you interested, and it makes you want to know more about these people that she's telling a story about. Even though they're fictional, they come to life. Visit our guest at AnnaJWalner.com, where you can navigate through to her accounts on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and also YouTube. Reader's favorite writes of the book, it's a captivating tale of survival and human resilience. Saltwater and Driftwood hooks you from the start and refuses to let go until the end. Author Anna J. Walner perfectly captures the sense of panic and dread in the face of calamity. Anna, there's two things about that review. One is the word resilience. That really jumps out at me there because 
you look at your main character, Clara, and she's 16. And when you say that, that age, it's, it's so vivid for all of us. I don't know if there's another age that's as vivid. Even 21, I guess, is a milestone and 50 is a milestone and, and 13, I guess, is a milestone. But 16, and you think of the Gilded Age, you think of the pressure that's put on a young woman and she's struggling anyway as we all do at that age in fact this is the period of time when even the word teenager is invented we didn't always think of teens that way so she has this conflict with her mother this is this is the victorian era still is the gilded age america in this period is more victorian as we think of it than the victorians the over in england in this period of time where they were they were a little bit freer so how did your characters in Saltwood and Driftwood demonstrate the resilience of Galvestonians in particular, but also just of people in general? How, how do you hope or how did you craft the tale since you made her up that Clara and the other people in your novel would show that resilience and would inspire all of us to keep turning the page because we're rooting for them? And then maybe when we're stuck in that storm, we have that weather-related challenge or some other disaster in our lives. We think of Clara, we think of saltwater and driftwood in your characters, and it inspires us to say we could do it. We can, we can reach down inside and survive this. Clara is a delight in contrast to some of the other characters in the book. And that was part of the process in writing the distinct characters and their inner voices letting them come through so when each character is talking you know instantly who they are clara is in the blush of her prime i guess you would say uh but this is also the 1900s are was the time when it was very debutante galas and the coming out parties high teas and everything was so very new. Um, Galveston was at the forefront of all of this. So it was a time when she felt very, as it says in the book, there was a spark inside of me that mother said, if left unattended would burn out of control. So you see that defiance in her <laughs> that great. she that she does not wish to be made a proper wife. She does not think that she has that capability to be, she's more independent and she sees that in herself. Whereas Lydia, her sister is by the book, she is going down this path that her mother has set for her, the aspirations of gaining stature within Galveston society or Houston society. And she's perfectly fine with that, but Clara is not. And that spark of fire that I reference in the beginning of the book continues to burn in her even through the storm. And you see that after the storm as well. Now, mind you, this is a town that has no other way in and out other than rail. And at this time, after the storm, there were, there was no help. There was no, uh, there was no way in. So Galvestonians had to band together and take on this monumental task of search and rescue, of taking care of the wounded, of other 
things that come along with the disaster of this magnitude, not having any help from the mainland. So you see that Clara really embodies that, that fortitude that's beyond her years to continue on and through what could have been, although it does stay with her, it's not a defining point in her life that has broken her. She continues on. And I think that that is the real message of how we still in Texas, when a huge storm hits, you know, we come to the aid of our neighbors and we all rally together to pick up and start again. It's just what we do. Couple of things there just for people that are listening at home and looking for a great novel and thinking about picking up saltwater and driftwood. In good fiction, one of the things we have to do is put people in what they call the crucible. And that means you stick them in that haunted house. There's no way out. There's no phones. There's a big storm outside. That's exactly the case in Galveston. People outside don't even know, hey, we haven't heard from Galveston in a while. It's not, there's no satellites. There's no, there's, if the phone lines are out, well, they, they were out all the time and we don't necessarily know what's coming. So, and talk there's no helicoptering in help it's an island so these are all things you you can you could say that that makes for a good story they are literally quite on their own the other thing is that's so important to be able to have distinct voices which saltwater driftwood does for characters so that you're not going back and forth between sections of viewpoints saying well who is this now i, I can't tell i lost track that that is is well done on your part i really enjoyed that part of it so so important when you're reading a novel to know these people have distinct voices. They're not cookie cutters. Right. You definitely see that. You know when Clara is talking by her 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 tone and her 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 pattern of speech. You also know <laughs> well, you when... did that. She's not actually talking. That's you. That's because you did that and you think she's real, which is great. That's important for a novelist. Yeah, but she didn't actually, she's not talking. She's talking to you. We may we may have to go back to the fantasy novels. So. <laughs> right, right. But 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 when in dialogue, um <laughs> When uh, when I'm writing the dialogue of Clara, you know, it comes through as more, you know, the tone and the, the depth of it. You can automatically tell that it's Clara's attitude, shall we say, that is shining through. And then Lydia has this more reserved, taken aback um, sort of, um, how dare you say such a such an improper thing, you know, or she's. She's flustered and doesn't know what to say. And then again, the mother shines through as very proper and authoritative and somewhat narcissistic, I would say, um, in her lofty aspirations that she has. So you get the distinct, um, and, and Grant, um, as as well, who you'll 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 learn of in the book, you know, he comes across as more grounded. So Clara and Grant are continue to be two of the fan favorites and reviewers favorites in the novel um, for for those reasons because they're a little more progressive, and this is when women are starting to desire more of a voice and have a little more control over what they want to do. As Clara says, I don't wish to marry for money. I wish to marry for love. 
and um, sort of goes against the system. So now we would think who would want to meet a 16 year old that doesn't want to marry for love and have those aspirations. And another bit of great writing there is you saying the she has that spark inside her. And I think, I mean, I'm I'm in my 50s now, early 50s, but still, uh, you know, we're we're not in our teen years anymore, my wife and I, but you you see somebody with that spark in them who tells you that you immediately remember your own sparks in yourself. And then you say this storm is a big wet storm with a lot of rain and wind can very easily extinguish a spark. So I like things like that that are buried here in saltwater and driftwood. And I also wanted to mention a quick little thing there about that reader's favorite that gave you that nice review. You'll read a lot of places, people hedging a little bit and saying, one of the worst storms, a very bad disaster, arguably the worst. And I, I just want people to know this is the worst. On the Gulf Coast, you have this uneasy relationship with the sea. And that's what we're experiencing here in saltwater and driftwood. That, that's something that I think you really wanted your readers, Anna, to experience with you, that this really was the worst. This is a huge loss of life. And even though we naturally think something like even 9-11 or Superstorm Sandy up here in the New York, New Jersey area that was, that was very bad. We assume that must have been worse, but this really was the worst. And that's, that's something I think is very important to you to express to your readers. That that's what they're getting here. They're getting a story that hasn't been told before, even though you can't believe it hasn't been told before. I know. It's, it's, that was the main focus of the story is that when I tell people about, hey, have you heard about the great storm of, of Galveston, 1900? I receive blank stares sometimes. And I just, I can't believe that it's slipped into memory. And that's one of the things, or slipped into forgotten history. And that's one of the things that you know, Clara says in her journal is that someone has to write it down. Even if no one else remembers, I have to put this down on the page so that maybe someone someday will find it and bring it back to life. And that's really what I'm trying to do is bring the story back into focus and get readers interested enough to do their own research, to Google, to watch documentaries, to pick up a nonfiction book, um, to find out more information about it. So that's, that's really what I'm trying to do is spark that curiosity that was sparked in me so long ago in the readers who pick up this book. One thing about that death toll to go back to your craft is when you're talking about so many dead people, up to 8,000, it, it can drag the story down. It can become very maudlin. You're talking, you, you hesitated before to say it, the other things people have to do, you said cryptically, which is a nice tease for the book there, but you're, you're speaking about people having to bury bodies at sea, about piles of them uh, that are in the streets. It's just, it's just terrible. And it's very easy to drag down, not just this interview, as I did a little bit right there, but your novels. So how do you go about telling the story so it remains focused on the living and resist maybe your urge to, to focus on those, those people that did lose their lives because you clearly want to do justice to them. How do you do that in the plot of Saltwater and Driftwood? Of course, I could not ignore the difficulties that were faced with dealing with the bodies. Dug, graves were dug and immediately filled with mud. There was no 
burial option. So they had decided that putting them on large barges and pushing them out to sea would be sufficient. But the bodies floated back onto shore. And with disease of very real concern, incineration was the only option. Now, this is historical fact and couldn't be left out of the book. So while I do incorporate the actual events that happened with the disposal of the remains, I also focus on St. Mary's Church and the survivors there and Clara's story and the people she meets who are also survivors. And then her plan, without giving too much away, her plans after the storm. So the book continues after the storm to make it more well-rounded and sort of finish out where the journal ends. Trying not to yep. say too much. Yeah. <laughs> well, as I said, that's that's part of the challenge. But it's a, the thing is, you do your job, so people want to learn more, want to stick around with these characters. One thing that I like to ask, something takes place a long time ago. This is 122 years ago, and we talk about those Gilded Age social conventions, the way people spoke. We talked about dialogue. So those attitudes, in your case, how do you approach those challenges in saltwater and driftwood? So you stay true to the period, but you craft a character that's realistic and contemporary because I think that nowadays there's a lot of tendency to think everybody back then, every woman must have chafed against the conventions of society. And those that did, well, we just don't, we, we don't even want to pay attention. They're just these two-dimensional shrews. So here in the case of Clara, in the case of some of your other characters, you want to keep them relatable. And also you want to make sure that it's historically accurate. So how do you go about that? So readers could enjoy and relate to the characters, but the story that you tell is still realistic and true to the time when, let's face it, Clara was not going to be burning her bra anytime soon, or maybe her <laughs> waistcoat. But uh, yes, yeah, she wasn't going to be, you know, you have to keep it accurate, right? Because you don't want her to be a cardboard cutout. Right. You, you do have to. So I tried to do that on multiple different levels with keeping the historical accuracy, but also showing Clara's small contemptuous ways against her mother, which I think all teens and even adults can think back to a time when they've bucked against their parents' wishes, uh, you know, in, in a way where they didn't want to go to prom with so-and-so or <laughs> because, because that's, you know, who, who they were supposed to go with or, or things like that. So trying to incorporate some of those, those natural emotions that we all retain that are just human emotions. So fear, love, longing, uh, hope, dread, fear, taking all of those and really incorporating universal emotions into the characters while still painting the picture of the oleander lined streets and the smell of the sea breeze, Murdoch's bathhouse and the bathing in the sea that Clara longs to be able to do but is not allowed to. And, um, but, but making her more three-dimensional and then you see the mother and the granddaughter in present day reading the journal, the granddaughter, and you see a bit of Clara in her, I think, or at least that was the attempt, is to put a little bit of that, 
that fire in the daughter and the granddaughter. So you see that fire continue through the generations. By the way, I know I should have said shirtwaist there. And I, I said waistcoat. I didn't mean that. So please don't send me angry emails. Or, or petticoats. <laughs> yeah, those she might have, might have been willing to torch. They, they will go up well. If you don't know the triangle shirtwaist fire, by the way, that, that uh, little reference that speaking of horrible disasters right here in New York City. Yes, and, and one of the one of the things that she most desperately wants is to be be allowed to to wear a bathing suit, which in that time yep. was not revealing at all. If you will look up pictures and 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 do the sure. research, it's it's basically like short overalls. And uh, so, but 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 proper ladies do not bathe in the ocean, as is what <laughs> she is. So so we do see that the mother keeps that very strict Victorian tone, which I think helps to stay realistic with the times, but then also see Clara's desires for a more natural, what, what we would want if we were stuck in that time period, how we would kind of, you know, want the same things that Clara does. And then that goes on for a long time in Atlantic City, even in the 20s, I'll toss up a photo here on YouTube, but policemen out there measuring how short the bathing suit was on the ladies right so the, this ha very, this happened very strict yes yeah. by the way your viewpoint characters and people think that i'm biased because i obviously enjoyed saltwater and driftwood literary titan agreed and they said that the author expertly jumps from andrea's perspective and then to clara's perspective without confusing the reader so there don't take it from me you can take it there from literary titan about this book and how I know sometimes people have a hard time keeping characters straight. That will not be the case here in Saltwater and Driftwood. I'd like to wrap up with one final question where I ask you to make your pitch to your targeted reader out there. When you're writing Saltwater and Driftwood, uh, an author, a novelist usually has somebody in mind. Also, when you pitch it out to the world, you say it's similar to this book, meets this book, to that book. So People are listening out there. They're thinking about going to historyauthor.com and clicking through to Amazon. See, I could plug my own stuff too. And, and buying a copy, maybe a few copies for people that they like and that, that they know and know will enjoy it. What do you say to them? What do you say if you like this book, you'll, you'll really love Saltwater and Driftwood, give it a chance. How do you inspire them to pick up Saltwater and Driftwood to go on this journey with you and your characters? I've been dreading this question, if you can't tell, because I I really, there's nothing comparable to it. And, and I know that because I've looked for it for decades. So, so I really had to go with, if you enjoy, <laughs> um, if you enjoy the weather and the disaster aspects of the perfect storm and the gilded opulence of Titanic, then you will love walking the oleander line streets of historic Galveston in 1900 with Clara and her family. Well, I could say because I've had Michael Tugas who wrote The Perfect Storm here on the show that, hey, I enjoyed both. So that was a that was a really good example, <laughs> even though you thought you were struggling for it. I was. So, well, Anna, author of Saltwater and Driftwood, I can say what you won't, and that's that this historical novel does what historical fiction does best, and that's Give us a view of the past, inspire us to go learn the real history, 
if you like historical fiction, if you just like reading fiction, this book, I wouldn't recommend it if I didn't really believe it has something for anybody who enjoys fiction or any kind of book. And hey, it has a great cover too. So you'll look, you'll look really snazzy reading it. People will ask you, hey, what's that? And then you point them to go pick up a copy themselves. And I wish you the best of luck with this novel. And I can't wait for your next one. Thanks so much for joining me today and sharing Saltwater and Driftwood. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure to be on. Again, this wonderful historical novel is Saltwater and Driftwood. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Anna J. Walner for joining us and for bringing us on a fictional journey of real life events against the backdrop of the storm with no name that killed so many. Visit our guest at AnnaJWalner.com and you can also navigate through to her social media accounts from there. Those are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. She's very active, which is great to see for a novelist. I love to see a good novelist promoting a good novel. You can also follow her on YouTube. She's everywhere you want to be. If you enjoyed watching this conversation, please do subscribe on our YouTube channel for future journeys in the Wayback Machine and visit historyauthor.com. You'll find my social media accounts there and over 250 interviews. You're sure to find an author and a great read that's right for you. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Anna J. Walner, thanks so much for time traveling with us today and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.